Stories are pretty powerful, right? When you know the background of somebody, you're going to get to hear some of that in a little bit. Um, I'm going to teach short today, and uh, one of our own, James, is going to join me up on the platform in just a few minutes because he has a story. Um, John Newton tells a story about grace that we can all identify with. And, and when John hit the seashore, he began studying God's Word. Um, he, matter of fact, poured himself into the book of Romans and didn't mind spending a couple years in Romans. So <laughs> measure up, you guys, okay? Maybe you can write songs like that one day. So John has a story to tell, and James has a story to tell, and I want you to hear his, his story about uh, how God brought him to the place he's at today. But before we do that, I want to get into Romans with you. We, if you have a Bible with you, maybe it's on your phone or on your uh, iPad, um, pull it out and go to Romans chapter 6. We're just going to get through two verses today. Now, I'm going to ask you to do me a favor and uh, p- reach into your bulletin right now and pull out the notes. If you grabbed one of the bulletins on the way in, the study notes are in there. Maybe you don't typically consider yourself a note taker. Um, but do this. I know you don't need it, right? But take notes for somebody else, okay? Maybe you got somebody in your life that needs to hear this. It might be that you need to pull out your phone right now and text somebody and tell them to, to live stream the message. Maybe they need to hear about God's amazing grace. So let, let's dive into Romans chapter 6. And at this point, here's what Paul's doing. He's focusing all of his energy on the practical effect of salvation. All that you know. So he's obviously talking to people who are believers in Jesus Christ. And he's trying to sum up all that he said in chapters 1, 2, 3, 4, and 5. We've been in it for 30 weeks now. Paul said it in five chapters. Let me review with you where we've been. Because of all that's been said in the previous five chapters, there's a logical flow. Check the flow on this. In light of the fact that we have a gospel that we are not ashamed of, so Paul said, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for it is the power of God. That's what he said in chapter 1, in light of the fact that we know God will judge the secret thoughts of man through Christ Jesus. That's Romans chapter 2. In light of the fact, Romans 3.23, that we have all sinned and we all fall short of the glory of God. In light of the fact that we all die in Adam. That's chapter 4. But we live in Jesus. In chapter 5, in light of the fact that we have been justified by faith in Jesus Christ, Paul logically says in chapter 1, or chapter 6, verse 1, how then shall we live? See, this word then is really, really important. So look closely with me at chapter or 6, verse 1 on the screen if you don't have your Bible with you. He says it this way, what shall we say then? What shall we say? Are we to continue in sin that grace may increase? So that word then, it's really, really important so that you understand he's not going off in some new direction. This is not some new thought. He's linked the word then to everything that he's just said in the previous five chapters. How are we supposed to live then? What shall we say then? So bear down with me into verse 1 where he asks the question, are we... To continue in sin so that grace might increase? There's only one word in your notes this morning that's a Greek word, the only one I'm going to use, and it's the word continue. And you can see it in your notes or see it up on the screen. It's this word epimeno. And it means to remain someplace, like live in it. 
like you're hanging out there and it's comfortable. So Paul's asking this question, are we supposed to hang out there? Are we supposed to live in this stuff so that grace can increase? That's the word that he's actually using there. So here's what Paul's thinking of. He's thinking of the person who has acknowledged belief in Jesus Christ. Maybe they came to the Easter service last weekend and they heard about Jesus for the first time and have professed faith in Jesus Christ, but maybe they've been walking with Jesus for 40 years and they know what salvation is. That's who Paul is thinking of, the believer. And they say, I believe. What do they believe? Well, what we love, like Romans 5.20. Look at that verse, just an excerpt of it. We, we cheer for this one in the church. Where sin increased, <laughs> grace abounded all the more. Amen, church? And we love that stuff. We'd say, yeah, I am all over that. I am all about that. I love that. I believe that. My sin increased. His grace, it's even greater. We just sang about it, right? So in the midst of that, inevitably this issue rises up, one that we all struggle with if you're a believer in Jesus. And here's the thought. So if we got grace, why not continue on sinning? Why not just hang out there? Because His grace overpowers it. Now, we would never say that out loud, right? Because we're like church people. So we're not going to say, why not just keep on sinning? But we think it. And we wouldn't admit that, even probably to our closest friend. But we'd say, why not? I can sin and God's going to forgive me. So here's the thought. If the gospel only requires you to believe, and that's all you have to do is just believe, and if our good works count for nothing, and my sin increases His grace, well, if my sin increases His grace, then why not keep on sinning? If you've been through any kind of a recovery program or you know somebody who has, you understand the phrase that's typically used around that. It's called playing the grace card, right? using God's grace for your own benefit. So that's the argument Paul's trying to answer here. He's thinking of a person who has acknowledged belief in Jesus, but has never made Him Lord. In other words, staying right where you are, hanging out there, unwilling to budge, because it's comfortable, so it becomes habitual, habitual sin. Now, this is going to feel like a little bit of a shift, but just stay with me on this. Scripture makes it really, really plain. Genesis to Revelation. Check it yourself. 66 books. You won't find any place where God says your holiness is earned, but God rather says very specifically a relationship with God, the holiness that you need, that holy life, it's linked to something that is accomplished by Jesus this life that we need of holiness, a holy life is only accomplished by the power of God working in the life of a believer. So stay with me. It's clear that if you're a believer, God sees you as holy. God sees you right now as a holy person. That's His view of you. Why? Because of the work of Jesus. So here's my question for you. Can you, as a believer in Jesus Christ, can you achieve a greater degree of standing before God than what Jesus has already given you? No, right? We would say, no, I can't get a degree, greater degree of standing before God 
Jesus has made me holy. God sees me as holy. So therefore, I know He sees me that way and I'm saved. So logically, Paul's asking this question. Can you not become more holy in your actions? So let me ask you this, church. Can you become more holy in your actions? Yes or no? Yeah, we can. Even though God sees us as holy. See, the Bible calls that sanctification. It's not something you immediately have other than you're saved at the beginning and the sanctification process starts. So God works upon us to make us more holy. That's what Paul's writing about here. So a life that is not marked by increasing degrees of holiness really better check themselves to say, is this a legitimate thing in me? Now, no believer whatsoever will ever be sinless. This is not what we're talking about is perfectionism. We're not talking about perfection. No believer will ever be sinless until they reach heaven with Jesus Christ. Amen? That's when it's going to happen for us. But a believer, one who says, yeah, I'm in. I believe this stuff. I'm following Jesus. A believer who persistently disregards Jesus' righteous standards by willful disobedience has pretty good reason to question the reality of their walk. So just so we're really clear on this, I know it's hard stuff. If you're looking for Happy Sunday, that was last week, okay? This is hard. Romans 6 is very, very clear. It's not speaking of a believer who occasionally falls into sin because we all do, right? We all find ourselves stumbling into it. Every Christian, because of the weakness of humanity, finds himself occasionally stumbling. That's not what Romans 6 is talking about. It's talking about the person who is willfully sinning as a pattern of life. One that says this, I know what the Bible says. I know what God's standards are, but I don't care because I got grace and He's going to forgive me, so I'm good because I need this. And here's the excuse that typically goes through the mind. God understands. Well, gag me, right? Because God doesn't. God doesn't wink at sin. So just process this question. It's for yourself. Can a follower of Jesus live in the same relationship to sin that they had before salvation? In other words, I'm going to do whatever I want to do because He's going to forgive me anyways. Can a person receive new life and continue in the former life? Well, God's Word emphatically answers the question, no, and Paul makes the case brilliantly. We're only going to do two verses, like I said, so let's go to verse 2. Verse 2, he answers this question, may it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Do you catch the sense of outrage here from Paul? That the thought of it could ever possibly be true? How could it be possible for those who died to something to continue to live in it now let's put it in 2017 language. What does death do? Well, death separates, right? So Paul's using really deliberate language here. If you've lost a family member or a friend to death, you understand you're separated from that person. And if they're a believer in Jesus and you're a believer in Jesus, you're going to be reunited one day in heaven in eternity. But for now, death has separated you. So Paul's using this language really intentionally when he says, we've died to something. 
In this case, death has removed the believer from the control of habitual sin. That's what we need to get here. Something has changed in us. Now, I don't use Eugene Peterson's The Message for my study Bible, and I would encourage you not to do it as well, but I want you to see his quote on the screen. He wrote The Message for the benefit of his little daughters who were trying to understand the Bible, so he kind of reinterpreted it, and, and then they put it to print. But this is what he said in regards to Romans chapter 6, verse 2. If we left the country where sin is sovereign, how can we still live in our old house? Or did not you realize we packed up and left for good? That's pretty good, right? See, if you go to the Bible, if you go to God's Word, it doesn't say that sin died to the believer. And nowhere does it say that sin has been abolished yet, right? It's going to be. Revelation chapter 20 tells us one day sin and death are going to be thrown into the lake of fire, and it will be no more, no more haunting us. But for now, we live in it, right, church? It, it's here. It hangs around us. It's there, so rather than sin having died, what the Bible tells us is the believer has died to sin, meaning it's still there. It's still pulling at us. It's still calling us. Yet, here's the difference now as a Christ follower. I choose not to act on it. I know it's there. I know it tries to suck me in. Previously, in Ephesians, we're told we were dead in our sin. Now we find in Romans, we are dead to sin. And there's a difference, right? We're talking about an identity issue. That's why Paul uses this word we. I want you to bear down with me in verse 2 for just a minute. We're talking about a quality of life. We who died to sin. So Paul's using this idea of quality. We who belong to Jesus. We who are of such high calling. We who are of such quality. Not that we're that great, but what for Jesus has done for us has made us great. So he's using this quality thought here. So bear down with me on this. We who died to sin. If you studied English, I assume most of you went to school. All of you probably went to school in America. You understand what a verb is. And if you've forgotten, a, a verb is an action word. So when you go through those five words, you see an action word there, and the action word is died. Something happened. Verb says we died to it. We have died to sin. So becoming a follower of Jesus is a decisive step. It's not some trivial thing. It's a decisive action. Something changed in your life. It was the beginning of your faith. And it means it started fresh for you. Sin's rule no longer had power over you. So do, do we struggle daily? Yeah, we do. And there's a sense in which we understand this sin that we're talking about is a daily issue for us. You find Paul saying, things I don't want to do, I do do. And the things that I do want to do, I don't do. So you find the disciples coming to Jesus, and they're saying to Jesus, um, would you teach us how to pray appropriately? And you know the prayer, because if you're familiar with church, you've heard the Lord's Prayer. And Jesus starts out with, Our Father, holy is your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done. But by the time you get to the end of it, you find something that really resonates with us. It's very familiar when he says, and pray also this way, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from what, church? Deliver us from evil, right? Because it's present. 
It daily surrounds us. And Jesus said, you've got to pray that way that you would be delivered from it. But here in Romans chapter 6, verse 2, it's not talking about the daily thing. It, it's talking about a death that's permanent, a death that occurred at the beginning of your life with Christ. Because death, by its very definition, means a person doesn't continually die. It's a one-time thing. If it's legitimate, if the death is real, it's permanent. So in the same way, in the exact same way, a person who has truly died to sin can't possibly still hang out there. So Paul's asking a really fair question. Since you died to this, how shall we live in it? How should we hang out there? An old theologian who's not alive anymore, he said it this way, um, if we're dead, how are we still breathing that air? That air meaning the air of sin. If, if we're dead, why is it that we're still sucking that air into our lungs? I want you to see this phrase on the screen. It's in your notes as well. It just comes from my study notes, but I want you to get this down. Paul is bringing out a really, really strong truth for Christ followers here acceptance of sin is incompatible with a Christ follower. Now think that through, because the ramifications are huge in your life. That means regardless of what culture says is okay. Regardless of what culture says you can wink at, God says no. Now if you say something's okay and the particular sin is all right, but God says it's not, guess who's going to win that argument? Right? Okay? So if culture winks at it, but God says, no, don't go there. Let me back it up with Scripture. Galatians 5.24. Maybe you want to write these ones down on your notes this morning. Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh. I think crucifixion meant something when he wrote, wrote that and used that word. In the first century, they understood crucifixion. Those who belong to Jesus have crucified the flesh, meaning it was nailed to the cross with its passions and desires. Here's another one, 1 John. 1 John 3, no one who is born of God practices sin because his seed abides in him and he cannot sin because he's born of God. Now some of you are thinking right now, like, yikes, what's that saying? Well, look really closely at the verse. See the word practice? That means habitual. That means staying in the same sin over and over and over again. I don't care. I need this. God knows I need this. That's the word practices there. Not talking about somebody who stumbled. So it says the one who practices sin can't do that. Why? Because his. Do you see the word his is capitalized? That's Jesus. His. Capital H. His seed. God abides in you. So logically, John says because he's born of God, he can't do that. Here's what it's saying. It's impossible for a true believer to remain and hang out and live in habitual, sinful activity day after day. Uh, let me circle back to the happy verse we looked at earlier in Romans 5.20. Right, we're really good with this one. It says, where sin increased, grace increased all the more. It's greater. It's much, much greater. And if you're new to church, I understand uh, I'm, just because I'm smiling doesn't mean that's not true. It is true. Right, church? Amen? It's true. It, it, it means this. There's no sin that you can commit that God's grace is not greater than. To the degree 
that God's grace is greater collectively than all of the sins ever created by any man that's ever lived in all of history, past, present, future. God's grace is greater. And we're good with that. Where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. But here, Paul states with equal authority, a justified life will move towards a holy life. I'm not stating any of this for you to examine the person sitting next to you, right? All right? This is for you. This is for me. This is so we do a self-examination. How am I doing with this stuff? Because prior to your life in Jesus, sin can't help but be anything but the pattern of life because it touches everything. It stains everything. But a person who has Jesus... That person is indwelt by the power of the living God through the Holy Spirit. And we're told as a result of that, we have new life. Answer this with an amen if you agree. Do we still struggle? Yeah. So if you think you came in here, if you're new to church, and you think you're sitting in a room of super saints, right? We're here to check you out on that because we're going to say we struggle. We may know more Bible verses. We may be a little further down the trail, but we struggle. It's just that we're, we're understanding who we are in Jesus. But as we struggle, we get this promise from God's own Word. There is no temptation that has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. You know that verse, right? You see it up on the screen? Look at it with me really close. No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond that which you are able but with the temptation will provide the way of escape. Why? So that you will be able to endure. See, when we wander off into that field of sin and we say, that's okay, God gave me grace. God says, no, you don't have to go there. I, I give you the ability to say no. So if you're saying yes, it's on you because God says, I'm not going to allow you to go into a temptation that you are overcome by. The reality is we are in process. We are not yet perfected, right? And so we understand we stumble. So we get Philippians 1.6 to remind us. I am confident, I am confident of this very thing, that He who began a good work in you, He will perfect it. Meaning you will be perfect one day, church. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you will be perfect. When? Well, in the day of Jesus Christ, meaning when He returns... But until then, we live with the reality of this sin. So Christ's death for sin became your death to sin. We're going to talk more about that next week as we get into verse 3. But what I'd love for to happen right now is for my friend James to come up here and join me. And what you're going to watch is just an interchange between myself and James as we talk through the reality of these verses that we just looked at. James has a story to share, much like John Newton. We're just going to grab a couple chairs, so just bear with us for a moment while we do that. I want to make sure I ask you the right question, so hang on a second. Go ahead and sit down, James. I don't ever see James or other people that I know with stories like James without thinking of the Big Daddy Weave song that we sang at the beginning. If I told you my story, you would hear life overcome the grave, right? Talks about the love of God. 
James um, is new to church. It, it wasn't something he grew up with. Occasionally, he told me that his dad took him when his dad had um, bursts of desires to get re-centered with God. Right. Right? Okay. Um, James and Olivia attend here and have been a year and a half here. Right. Right? Okay. And uh, they have a son, Deacon. But um, J- James looks a lot prettier than his story is, right? Amen. Yeah. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a hard story to get to this place where he can join us today. And I want you to be um, mindful of the fact what he's about to do, although he looks really good, is extremely hard because there's some transparency that has to take place in sharing his story with you. And so I'm just going to let him tell you what was life like before. Um, so I, I, was, uh, I was struggling with uh, addiction. I was uh, using heroin and, and drinking alcohol every day, all day. And, and where did that take you? Uh, it eventually took me to homelessness. I was, uh, it had taken me to prison, and then it eventually took me to homelessness where I was holding a sign on the side of the road. How did you end up here in Michigan? Um, I was in prison in Indiana, and Olivia moved up here to graduate from MSU, and I uh, paroled up here to be with them. Okay. And during that time that he was in prison, you all came around Olivia. She's attending here, and um, she found a a home at New Hope Church. Um, Church wasn't necessarily big in her life either, but the family of Christ drew her in and loved on her. And James, looking for his family, came here to be near them. But like a lot of individuals you see standing out on the streets holding the cardboard signs, James knows a lot of those guys, and he was living that life, right? Right. And somebody here in the church body went and intervened in your life because Olivia asked, right? Right. Tell us about that a little bit. So uh, I met with Gary. Uh, Gary Post, if you don't know him, he's one of the pastors here. And Olivia reached out to him, and then he in turn reached out to me, and and we met. And we, uh, he just, you know, let me know. Because what I was struggling with was uh, the unworthiness. I I felt like I was unworthy of forgiveness. And uh, Um, I stopped you in the 9 o'clock right there. Let me stop you again. Anybody here feel unworthy of the forgiveness? Right? We can identify with that. I'm raising my hands for all of us, James, right? That, that's the thing that keeps a lot of people from coming to faith in Jesus. It's like, I don't measure up. What I've done in the past is too bad. So the things that had a hold on you, um, what did that do to your spirit in the inner man? Oh, I, uh, so I, I knew that I had like come to terms with the fact that I was probably going to die from using heroin and alcohol. And uh, I just didn't. I didn't think that I could uh, overcome overcome it uh, alone. I thought I felt alone, and I, I didn't think I had uh, I didn't think I had a chance to overcome that disease. So let's let the story turn a little bit, um, a lot actually. Like Amazing Grace in John Newton's story, what are the circumstances that brought you to Jesus? Um, so I, I went with Gary's help. We found uh, 
inpatient treatment center, and I got uh, put on, I got in trouble there, and uh, I got put on what they call discharge warning. So they would have kicked me out if I would have gotten in any more trouble. And I knew that if I ever used heroin or alcohol again, I would die from it. And, uh, and I just, I needed help, so I asked, I asked, like Gary had explained that I just have to ask and believe, and, and I asked Jesus for help. And James got baptized here like six weeks ago, right? Amen. Praise the Lord for that, right? Yeah. So he got to experience his first ever Easter service last weekend. Isn't that huge? And, and, and uh, he said, people look really pretty here on Easter. <laughs> Not that you don't other days, right? But he realized the value and the significance. We were just talking about it last night of what that meant to watch all those people coming together in celebration of the risen king. It takes on a whole new meaning, doesn't it? It does. Okay. Beautiful. So I told him I was going to save the hardest question for last. And... Um, we're tempted as believers in Christ to give simple pat answers to questions like this. Here's the question for James, who so freshly came from this. How would you identify or, or what, how would you explain your ability to move past your past? So I have a... So you, the, the body... You guys were praying for me before I, was, before I even knew you guys. And... Uh, that was so powerful in my life. Um, and then I, I have a family now. You guys are my, my family now. And uh, I realize now that I'm never alone. I'll never have to be alone and do this alone. And uh, I have the Holy Spirit now, so I always have a helper with me. Amen. Amen. Okay, two easy questions. Are you perfect? No. No. Are you forgiven? I am. All right. Praise the Lord. It's pretty hard to do, right? Put yourself on display like that. Don't hesitate to connect with James after the service if you want to. Just love on him. Encourage him. And maybe he can help speak into your life. Just a couple thoughts before um, you go out the door. We, believers in Jesus Christ, walk with Jesus. We walk with the King. And He says, I've got you. I got your back. And there's no temptation that can overtake you, such as common demand. But in the way that the temptation comes against you, I will provide a way of escape. See, he's very clear that he will never leave us or forsake us. And that's the life James is knowing now. That's the life many of you know. You understand what it is to walk with the king. So don't fall into the old pat excuse of, "Ah, God winks at this, it's okay. He knows I need this. The obvious truth is something decisive happened in your life. We died with Christ. That's what I want to look at with you next week. We died with him so that we might have life through him. So I close this out in the best way I know, which is a a writing that occurs in the book of Galatians. 
where we see this verse that represents every one of us. And it says it this way in chapter 2. I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and delivered himself up for me. Amen, church? All right, let me pray with you. Father, we come here with surrendered hearts and a recognition that you've done things through your word this morning. You said your word is alive and active and it does things. The story of James and the story of John Newton, it's all our story, Father. We were lost, but now we're found. We're blind, but we see. And you've drawn us back in. We praise you, Father. We're in an auditorium full of individuals and people watching online who praise you for the reality of life in Christ. It's in the name of Jesus we ask for the greater degree of the power of the Holy Spirit within us that we would be able to say no to the things that you want us to say no to. That our life might be a better reflection of the holiness that you say you see us through. God, we ask for this in the mighty name of the one who gave himself for us, the Lord Jesus Christ and all God's people said, amen. Okay, on a happy note before you go out the door. A lot of people have asked about the outcomes of Easter weekend and, and what happened here. Last weekend, there were a little over 1,400 people that came to church on Easter weekend, right? And you're wondering, where did we put them all? Well, <laughs> yeah. Um, part of that was um, around 20% of that number were children downstairs, sixth grade and under, okay? So uh, Debbie had like 240-some children in, in services. I, I say all that not only for celebration because they heard God's word, right? That's a great thing. God's word went out. And a lot of people, like James, got to experience church in an Easter setting for the first time ever. That's great. But here's the reality. Um, you know that we're working on a building program. And a great desire is to bring you detailed information and updates. Today, I'm going to ask for something from you specifically. I'm going to ask that you would pray together with your entire New Hope Church family that God would continue to reveal wisdom to us for this reason. We presented a $6 million roughly plan to the congregation of what we believe the new building could look like and, and what the design for that would be to be adequate for what God's doing among us and the way that he's growing us. But if you've been watching the updates on the screen or maybe you're on your phone on the app, you see that about $2.5 million has come in towards that. And that's, that's great in the way of pledges. And an actual um, little over a million dollars has come in in cash already. Tremendous. Uh, but there's a big gap, right, between what we have to work with and what we thought we needed. So among the leadership team, we're just really praying and asking God and asking you to join with us in prayer. God, how do we address this? Because nobody here wants a $4 million debt, right? We just don't. We don't want to go to sleep with night, at night with that hanging over us. So we're asking God, how do we respond to this? Does this mean downsizing the building to make it more adequate to what we have to work with? And we continue to wait and wait on God? We'll do that because God's going to provide. We know that, right, church? Amen? He's going to provide. We're not in a hurry. But we have to respond to what he's doing among us too. So I'm just asking you, for the next two weeks, would you pray with us in the, in the leadership realm that we would see God's specific wisdom in this we know he's got a plan 
or just trying to understand how to respond to it. All right. So you can have a great week now. Get out of here. <laughs>